Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui. I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Last week we heard about the importance of strong social relationships in helping us have a healthy old age. Being able to get out and about is an important part of that, whether it's walking, taking the bus, driving or something else. Issues around transport and older people really interest Rebecca Brooklyn at the University of Otago. She's had several Health Research Council grants looking at older drivers. So I flew, drove and then walked to her office in Dunedin to find out more. Transport, it's such a huge area of everybody's life. How we get from A to B and how we get there safely is where I come to it with young drivers. But with older people it means so much more than that. For older people their ability to connect with their communities and engage in what's happening is critical to their quality of life and their connection. And their sense of independence as well. Definitely. It's that, and that comes across for young people and old people. What driving represents is a substantial amount of independence and the ability to decide what you want to do and when you want to go to places is huge for a lot of people. It's a facet of our lives I guess we take for granted until it's no longer an option. And so for older people especially, once they move into their later years and their health can start to deteriorate and we're very much a car-centric, car-dependent society, the impacts of no longer being able to drive um, can be huge on people's quality of life and can lead to depression, social isolation and in some cases early move into rest home care and some studies have shown um, premature mortality associated with driving cessation. The impacts are large. So when we talk about older drivers, do we know how many there are out there? Yeah, we do, and they are a growing population. So back in 2001, there was about 41,000 people over the age of 80 who still had a licence, and they represented one in three people over 80. And by 2016, that number had more than doubled to 91,000 people over 80 that still had their licence, and that represented one in two people over 80 are still licensed to drive. So they're a huge demographic and a lot of them will be still driving really well and really safely and they'll continue to do that into their 90s for some of them. Do we have any idea what the oldest driver has been? I can tell you from our study. We've got um, some drivers that are 96 in our study, but I think there's drivers in New Zealand that are over 100. What would be a perfect world in terms of people's mobility? So there's a concept called optimal mobility, which is this idea that people can go where they want to go, when they want to go, and how they want to get there, which doesn't necessarily mean it has to be car dependent. It's just about having options available that are accessible to people. So we are moving towards some alternative transport options with automated vehicles. They are a long way off, and probably in any scale that are going to make significant changes, we're decades away. But the idea of transport 
and it's not necessarily public transport either because people with mobility issues have issues around accessing public transport and being able to manage them. But if we had systems in place where people could get picked up and dropped off when they wanted to and where they wanted to and also have assistance with their packages and, and manoeuvring around places like hospitals... So it's sort of a wraparound support system to help people get to where they need to go. It could be better pavement so that people who might use a walker, for instance... It's can all of those things integrated, and that's where it gets very complex because it's not just transport policy, it's urban planning as well, and then it's the health systems and accessing those services. And we know from the literature and some of our early findings that for people's transport is being picked up by families and friends. So we're still, even though they're not, no longer able to drive themselves or drive as often as they wish to or under, you know, at night and things, it's predominantly being picked up by partners and families. And that works when you've got people who live near those support networks. But as we become, you know, more spread from our families or we have more people ageing in place, those options aren't there for everybody. And we also have families who, quite a lot of them are kind of in the sandwich generation where they are caring for older parents and still caring for their own, you know, teen, early adult family of their own. So they're very stretched. Well, let's just stick with driving for a minute. Mm -hmm. So as as we get older, what tends to be a typical trajectory? So you get to your 60s, you're still completely onto things, you're happy to hop in your car and go on a long holiday Mm -hmm. perhaps. Then what starts to happen? So you could still be like that at 90. Like, it's really not age-based. Um, so we're quite careful to make, make it clear that we're not about taking licences away from people or stopping them driving based on age, which is why New Zealand moved away from an age-based driving assessment process back in 2006. So, so now, remind me what happens now? Yeah, so now when you get to 75, you go to your GP primarily and get a fitness-to-drive medical certificate, so that's an in-room consultation. And then when you're 80, that happens again, and then every two years after that. And the GPs have some different options, so you can just, they can pass you straight away, or they could refer you to have a driving driving test if they think that you might need it, or there's also OT, driving-related assessments, which are more thorough and can look at things around vehicle modifications if needed, so people can still continue to drive. And do you know anything about when people stop driving, is it something that they are choosing themselves to stop or the doctor is basically going no I don't think you should be driving. So it's once again it's really diverse we know from an former driver's study it's a mixture most of them chose when to stop driving but for some of them it was an abrupt something's happened and they've had to stop or it's been a gradual decline in ability or an awareness that they're just not as confident or as comfortable as they were previously and so they come to that choice it does vary quite a lot. Um, the literature does show us that females are more likely to stop driving on their own, whereas males are more likely to probably need a little bit of a motivator to stop. And that we don't know why that is. It's the same with driving anxiety. Females report higher levels of driving anxiety than males. And we hypothesise that possibly that might be something to do with what it means to have your licence, and particularly for previous generations or older generations of males where having a driver's licence was a huge part of self-identity. Well, such a rite of passage when you're a teenager. Yeah, and the current older females haven't driven as long as the men. You know, they've come to licensing or driving later, generally, so the uh, older drivers coming through in the next 10 to 20 years, the females will be more similar to the males because they will have been licensed all their lives and very reliant on a car to get around. 
So it'll be quite interesting to see what those changes mean as well. I'm thinking of older people that I know and what happens over time tends to be that they they venture less far afield. You know, they tend to stay closer to home and it might be what they used to go to the doctor just around the corner. Mm -hmm. They pop out to the local supermarket. They go to have a coffee with a friend. Yeah, Yeah, so we call that a version of self-regulation. So people recognising their capabilities and managing it in terms of their driving so so that it gives them the option to continue to drive to some places anyway, rather than just abruptly stopping and then having to have all those needs met by somebody else or some other way of transport. We don't understand a lot about self-regulation in terms of how conscious those decisions are and how it relates to when they do ultimately decide to stop driving, which is partly what we're going to look at in our larger project. So tell me a bit more about the project. These are two Health Research Council of New Zealand funded projects. The first one started in 2015 and it has three studies within it. So there's the GP fitness to drive assessment study, which I've mentioned. Um, There's a component just looking at former drivers and trying to understand what their transport needs are and how they're meeting them and what mobility issues they're having. And then the bigger project, we recruited from the electoral roll a sample of older drivers, 65 years and older. So we have 1181 and their family members, if they had somebody that we could interview. It's a nationwide sample, so there's 675 family members as well. So we've done those baseline interviews with those older drivers and family members. And it's around, basically, what are these transport practices? Where are they going? How often are they driving? Have they started to think about driving sensation or made any plans for that? And also some of their baseline health and wellbeing measures because the idea is so with the new project we've just had funded it's a follow-up study so we're going to go back to those older drivers and family members next year so it'll be two years since we went to them the first time and then two years after next year so 2021 we'll go back again so we're going to try and follow their progress over time in terms of their driving how it changes things like self-regulation does it change over time Some of them will give up driving. We want to understand the circumstances around that, abrupt or gradual, how they're coping with that, the impact on any health and wellbeing outcomes, particularly interested in the social health outcomes, so which comes where social isolation and depression particularly come into play. I'm imagining there might be quite different patterns for people, say someone who lives in a small rural town versus someone who lives somewhere like Auckland. Mm -hmm. So Auckland... There's a lot of traffic, which I imagine would be quite intimidating for an older person, but then there's probably also more public transport options there, whereas in the small town, the roads are a bit quieter, and if you didn't drive, there's really no other way mm-hmm. of getting around. Yeah, so that's also what we're hoping to be able to look at in more detail. We're taking having a nationwide sample we've got to be able to look at some of those rural-urban differences in terms of access to other transport options, but also in terms of the roading environment and how that changes people's ability to cope with driving because it's quite a different challenge in those two different places. But then you have high-speed roads in, the, in a rural area, which can also be quite challenging, and lots of potential trucks and things on narrow roads. We're also interested in older Māori and their transport and mobility needs. So just over 15% of the cohort are Māori. And just over 50% of older Māori live in semi-urban or rural areas. So they live in quite remotely from public transport. So it's, it's quite complex, I think, would be the best way to sum it up. But ultimately, we need to keep people mobile and out and about so that they can socialise. Definitely. We certainly don't want people giving up before 
they need to. Driving anxiety is something that can be worked through and managed. You don't want it to be the precursor to someone stopping if they don't really need to. Same with vehicle modifications. You know, if someone's having trouble getting in and out of a vehicle, that doesn't mean they can no longer drive. It just means that maybe they need to look at having a swivel base put on their seat or something done with their mirrors so they don't have to turn their neck so much. So, so from that point of view, as long as people are safe, we want them to continue to drive, especially when we have few alternative transport options. But also, second to that, um, most people at some point will get to the point where they can no longer drive to all the places they want to go or drive at all. And so we want people to actually think about that. What does that look like? Like I think about retirement and I think about where I might live, but do you think about transport in that? Very little people, especially certainly we're finding in our work, got any given any thought to planning for no longer being able to drive. And it's partly a denial. So don't want to think about it, but also it's just not really on people's radar. And then sometimes new things come along, and I'm thinking about sort of older members of my extended family, and electric bikes have revolutionised their retirement. Mm-hmm. And lime scooters, maybe, I'm not sure. And so this is the other thing. Like a lot of older people, after the car, their next mode of transport is walking. Walking for an older person comes with a lot of issues as well and can actually increase their risk of injury, whether it be a collision with another vehicle or a cyclist or a scooter rider or or by falling with uneven paving. So it's about looking at the whole system and how it caters for an ageing population. Um, but on the plus side of walking is you get some health benefits yes, from that as well. Yes, most definitely. Mm-hmm. One of the things that sometimes strikes me when I'm out walking is at traffic lights and pedestrian crossings. Some of those pedestrian crossings have quite short crossing times mm-hmm. and I, I watch older people who can walk a little more slowly struggle to get across the road in time. Yeah. It's a very unfriendly environment for anybody that's got any mobility issue, regardless of age is what I would say about those systems. And that partly comes back to how we view ourselves as road users and this idea that the car is the dominant vehicle on the road and it has the precedent over everything else. I think we're getting a shift in that mindset that actually they're shared spaces and that we just need to be more accommodating for everybody not just older people, but all road users. Yes, it's been interesting because I come from Wellington where they've just made some reasonably major changes to our bus system. And some of the things that I don't think are particularly friendly is I've seen bus stops that used to be right in a shopping centre moved several blocks away. Yeah, so from an infrastructure point of view for running the buses and how the services link up, it possibly works better. But for for the users, and we want to encourage people to use public transport, they those systems won't work for everybody. Tell me about some of the things we could think about in in terms of how we design our cities and people moving around Mm. in them. So if we're thinking about public transport, so many people can still make use of public transport once they can no longer drive, but we need to think about the location of the start of those public transport systems from where people live and how do they get there. So if they have to walk from their home, it may be up or down a hill one way or the other. And even if it's more than 100 metres or a couple hundred metres, that could be enough of a barrier to make it inaccessible for people. So there's this concept called moorings, which basically is essentially having things like seats along the walking paths towards public, or between public transport, so people can stop and take a moment to rest, gather themselves up and then carry on again in their journeys. It also gives a set place where people can socialise, because people naturally congregate to where there's a resting place. So that can have an added benefit of some social contact for people as well. Thanks, Rebecca. 
and Rebecca Brookland is a research fellow in the Department of Social and Preventative Medicine at the University of Otago. I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ on the 15th of November 2018. Online, we live at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll find this story there, the audio as well as a written feature and useful links. There are also podcasts. They are free and they are in all the usual places that podcasts live. Other current RNZ podcasts to look out for are Black Sheep, which is about New Zealand history, the suffrage podcast Beyond Kate, and Two Cents Worth, which is a weekly chat about things to do with business and the economy. You'll find us on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.